Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As always, I'm grateful to all of you out there for listening to our show today. Um, We're going to turn the spotlight uh, on the media today, which is not something we do often on this show um, because uh, it feels a little self-serving to me at times to essentially uh, talk about ourselves, those of us who are journalists who cover particularly politics. But in fact, how the media prepares for and covers the 2024 presidential race, particularly uh, with regard to the fact that Donald Trump is the leading candidate for the Republican nomination, is an important story that we're going to uh, talk about today with our panel. Um, And before I introduce them, just a couple of observations um, from people who have expressed deep concern about the fact that ever since he sat uh, in the White House, Donald Trump has dramatically changed how we cover politics. Uh, There was a time when I think we all believed, because we were long trained to be as neutral as possible, to give, quote, both sides of an argument to somehow do what's known as objective reporting, which is really a fallacy that we'll get into at some point in our conversation today. But at some point, uh, journalists began to recognize that Donald Trump was different, that he spread lies, uh, made outrageous statements that needed to be checked, and that the role of journalism turned from giving both sides, Republicans on one side, Democrats on the other, to making certain that our readers, our listeners, our viewers understood the truth behind the misinformation, the lies that were coming out of Donald Trump. And it's not just Donald Trump. Here in Georgia, we deal with Marjorie Taylor Greene on an almost daily basis and many of the allies on the far right as well. So um, just a couple of observations from people who have been political journalists for some time. John Harwood, formerly with CNN, um, said this at one point. We're brought up to believe there's two different political parties with different points of view. And we don't take sides in honest disagreements between them. But that's not what we're talking about now. These are not honest disagreements. The Republican Party right now is led by a dishonest demagogue. Many, many Republicans are rallying behind his lies about the 2020 election and much more. And Jonathan Carl from ABC News gave any number of interviews a while back in which he said some version of what I'll quote right now. How do you cover a candidate who is effectively anti-democratic? How do you cover a candidate who's running both against whoever the Democratic candidate is, but also running against the very Democratic system that makes all of this possible? So those are some of the questions we're going to look at today with an extraordinary panel. I'm so thrilled to have with us uh, the three guests that we do, starting with uh, Kevin Riley editor-at-large now, having retired from his position as editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Kevin, thank you so much for being here for today's show. Well, Bill, it's great to be here, and I hope your listeners are uh, are strapped up their seatbelts, because this is going to be quite a show, because I think we'll get well beyond the, you know, somewhat routine navel-gazing people in the media do, and instead really get into the hardest things we either have to do or maybe aren't doing. Well, thank you for uh, being part of this conversation as editor-in-chief of the paper. Throughout the turbulent Trump era, you certainly had to wrestle with these questions frequently. Heather Hendershot uh, is back with us, I'm glad to say, uh, professor of media studies at MIT. But also many of you heard uh, the show we did with Heather not long ago uh, about her terrific book, when the news broke, Chicago 1968, and the polarizing of America. Heather, um, there are many aspects of your book 
that I think will come into play today. But um, I'm very happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I I was charmed to hear you say in the opening that, you know, it feels a little self-indulgent to talk about ourselves <laughs> in the media. Um, and of course, sometimes it's really important. You know, you think back to Walter Cronkite and those days, the idea was later. They wanted to report the news, not be the news. Um, but uh, sometimes the, the news is the news. So it's a really important conversation to have. Uh, well, I'm very happy you're a part of it, as a matter of fact. And we're uh, glad to have back Matt Brown, uh, Washington Post democracy uh, reporter. And, and Matt, I think, especially in the context of today's show, it's important to point out that you're part of a team that was created by the Washington Post in some ways in response to um, what the way in which we have changed how we look at um, especially right-wing uh, politics and as we look at the uh, lies being told by people like Donald Trump about the um, legitimacy of elections, of election apparatus, your democracy team is focused on dealing with all of that and more. Yeah, good morning, Bill. It's great to be here. And definitely the, the democracy team was born of basically a recognition, in my view, that the game of, that the game of politics is not oftentimes just about the players, but often about the chessboard that it's being played on. And I think that if my colleagues on the broader politics team are examining questions of how are the different you know chess pieces moving around, our question is just what is the state of the board? Is it rotting? How how healthy is it? Um, and I and just to the point of discussing the media in that environment, um, you know, the analogy of the fourth state, I think, is accurate. Uh, being part of a democratic system also means that the media has a responsibility that needs to be scrutinized as well. So happy to be part of today's conversation. Thank you. Kevin, let me start by asking uh, the most basic question, and that is this. Um, when, when, when we see a Donald Trump continue to lie about the rigged 2020 election, when we hear a Donald Trump uh, mischaracterized uh, the January 6th insurrection as a peaceful gathering of people who love their country and love democracy. Um, when we hear that and much more, um, we have gotten to the point where we say, no, we cannot let this stand. We cannot treat statements like that as a matter of fact. We have to put them in context. But that becomes a very tricky business for people like uh a, a journalist at your organization, the way we deal with it at GPB. Talk a little bit about that to start us off. Well, it, it certainly is difficult because, uh, you know, at some level, uh, you're stuck with reporting perhaps what someone says. And I think it's just exacerbated enormously by, you know, how news has shifted to really mostly being an online uh, format or online distribution, because the speed with which you react to something becomes absolutely key to getting the message out, getting it distributed. I mean, often the person, the personal organization who gets the story out first becomes the dominant story that is either uh, spread about, understood, reported upon itself. And it is very hard to uh, fact check in real time as a practical matter, because the last thing you want to do in a fact check is make a mistake with your fact check. And I do think the conventions that we use are now really something we have to uh, question. And my favorite example of that is we, you know, everyone in television knows there's nothing like live, like documenting a live event, you know, OJ Simpson and the white Bronco and, and the list goes on. But we are now in an age, uh, you know, speaking of Matt's uh, uh, chessboard, that maybe live is a convention we have to leave behind because of the damage it does. I think that there's an argument for that now. Um, Heather, uh, that's one of the points that um, um, we saw Margaret Sullivan make in a Washington. She was the media critic, of course, first for the New York Times, then went to the Washington Post and has since retired. And in her final column, she does say the good news is the media has come a long, long way in figuring out how to cover the democracy threatening ways of Donald Trump and his allies, especially his stalwarts, she says, in the right wing media. But then she makes the same point that Kevin does. She says it's time, especially for the broadcast media, to stop relying on coverage of speeches, debates, rallies, the kind of live coverage that uh, is very difficult to fact check and, in fact, just advances 
um, in, in many cases, um, misstatements, lies, and conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big ask to, to reduce the amount of, of live coverage. I will say it's not a, to put a little historical spin on it, it's not a brand new phenomenon. It's a particularly dire moment in, in, in a TikTok age and so on. But, you know, Nixon was complaining about instant analysis back in 1968 and 1972 that, you know, he would give a speech and the news would immediately talk about it and do commentary. And he thought that was that was one way that he vilified the press, you know. Um, And of course, they were struggling to fact check uh, in real time um, to some extent as as we are today. Um, I mean, one of obviously one of the big challenges right now is how do you report without amplifying? And uh, I think the challenge in particular for for television or TikTok or any kind of, you know, an image based material is that sometimes reporting without amplifying might mean using words instead of images and quoting people instead of giving them sound bites. Um, I, I think that's one way that you genuinely report on what's happening without giving people the the platform. You know, if you're reporting on a demagogue and you, you quote them instead of letting people hear their words, um, there's a way in which you uh, don't amplify just by virtue of doing that. Uh, Matt, is there a danger in all of this that it continues, though, uh, the attacks on the media as being uh, biased uh, and uh, therefore unreliable and responsible for, quote, fake news? Well, yes, I think that there's a lot of actors in the country who see um, attacking the media as even if they want to criticize us in um, our industry publicly, it, it's seen as a benefit to them to delegitimize um, what the press is trying to do in bringing people accurate information. And any innovations that we bring in that front um, can be seen as, de- as you know, delegating or um, abdicating that duty, which can be seen as a very, very dangerous area for us to engage in. I think that it's important to note, though, however, that the media should not be scared of bad actors who are going to criticize them or attack them because we need to be come up with innovative ways of doing our job. I, I would just point, for instance, just to a Washington Post article that went live this morning from my colleagues um, that we headlined uh, the deepening radicalization of Donald J. Trump, which was basically focused on, um, I would say, presenting Trump's you know various policies from his first Trump run for office his second run for office, his time in office, compared to what he's running on right now. And and we do quote and use video very extensively in that, but also with a lot of context and caveats for what his actual policy positions are, what the reality of situations are when he um, is lying. I think that it is very true and important for the media to not be scared of basically trying to contextualize this man. And, um, you know, I mean, in a Washington Post recent poll, we found that 70 percent of Americans believe that Donald Trump is a liar. I, I think that it's important for us to um, trust our audiences that in this era where they're going to see something on Twitter, they're going to see something on TikTok. They don't need us to find the news that we can be a trusted source and a trusted guide for them. And I hope that just our reporting and what we choose to cover, what we ch- how we choose to cover it um, does earn people's trust in that way. Well, in, in a few minutes, uh, I do want to turn to the fact that what, what really is happening is that uh, audiences for both print and, more importantly, for broadcast are turning to the sources where they are going to hear amplification of their own ideas, um, which is what makes something like what you're saying about the Washington Post uh, and, and the way you cover news even more important. But, Heather, if I could, let me start with you the conversation about the uproar over the CNN town meeting with Donald Trump. Um, As you well know, uh, they were criticized heavily by some pretty heavy hitters in the media for holding that town meeting. Bill Carter, once the esteemed uh, critic at the New York Times said, the thing was madness, total madness, like giving a microphone to a drunk uncle and saying, go for it. Um, uh, Others had similarly... uh, 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 critical comments about it. Brian Stetler, the former media critic at CNN, said, look away if you choose, but this is what it's going to be like. Should news outlets sanitize it or stare it in the face? So what about it, Heather? An hour plus for Donald Trump live with an audience picked uh, of people who essentially either 
support him, definitely support him or are leaning toward him. Yeah, I, boy, <laughs> the, the audience pick uh, that was one of the most disturbing things to me about that. Um, it, you know, if you want to give an interview to a political candidate, that's that, you know, that makes sense, right? This is the, this is a, a viable candidate or, you know, the, it's whatever, it's the reality of who the candidate is for the GOP at this moment. Uh, and of course, talking to him is, is totally legit, but the audience, I mean, conventionally, these town hall meetings are, are supposed to be filled with either the, uh, elusive undecided voter, which every politician wants, right? They're undecided voters, or you you deliberately fill them with half Democrats and half Republicans, or a third Dems, third Republicans, a third undecided. You you find some kind of balance, and so I was particularly disturbed by an audience of people who were very much already decided for Trump and who were hooting and hollering and laughing at, at these crude, terrible comments. And in some ways, that was uh, the most extreme dereliction of duty in what CNN was doing there, because you know up on the platform they have a uh, uh, a very good newscaster who's really practiced hard, Caitlin Collins, you know, uh, she's done tremendous prep work. She's trying really hard to do corrections and so on in lifetime, and she's doing her darndest. But then you have a crowd of, of people laughing and 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 uh, trivializing in certain ways the, the whole event. Um, so. That was the that was the biggest takeaway for me. And when people like I, I hear what you're saying about Brian Stelter or Anderson Cooper made a comment about sort of echo chambers, you can't just bury your head in the sand. Um, I'm a little wary because it's not like we haven't heard these words from from Trump before. He's not reporting new ideas or new platforms or new policies, except insofar as he's um, as as Matt put it, there's a deepening uh, radicalization from that that headline. Right. Like in some ways things are getting worse, but he's not saying anything new that would surprise us about Donald Trump that must be reported. Right. So so the the so the main thing that happened at that CNN event was a spectacle not a news event in many ways. Kevin? You know, uh, Bill, I got, I'm going to admit something to everyone. Um, I was awake last night trying to decide where I should land if you asked me about the CNN thing. Uh, did they make a big mistake? Is it important for the world to see Donald Trump for who he is, um, all of that? Because I've been struck by the people, sort of um, the anti-Trump people and their harsh criticism of CNN. So I'm going to try something here that to, that I want to see what Heather and Matt think, especially, you know, as the, having been the editor of a local newspaper for so many years, uh, one of the most difficult things that happens occasionally is the tragedy where you cover like a kid killed in a car accident or someone, a, a young person killed in a shooting or some tragedy and you write the story and then Every now and then you will hear from a family member, in the worst case, a parent who gets you on the phone and is just so angry and so emotional and so just genuinely, you know, hurt about what you've done. And, and I learned a long time ago to take it and realize an important thing, which is they're angry and it's misdirected we didn't kill their child. We just wrote about it. We just made it real to the world. Well, I have a similar thing about this Trump thing. I get why everyone is so angry, but why are they angry at the media? Why are you angry at CNN? Isn't your anger a little misdirected? Aren't we, shouldn't we be angry at this man and what he's done to our country? So what do you think about that? I think that's a great point, right? Like you're you're playing on his terms. If you're like the problems, the media. No, the that's not the problem. But uh, 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 you know, this was the CNN event was what Daniel Borson would have called a pseudo event. You know, it, it was this was not a news story. It was something that CNN created to try to boost ratings, and they successfully did boost ratings. Um, so it that's it's a big problem, Matt. Yeah, I, ha I yeah, I have to be careful here because I, I don't want to, um, you know, impugn the motives um, or potential motives of what CNN was um, trying to do with this town hall. But I will say that I think that it is important for the media to 
recognize that Trump is unquestionably, um, I mean, this this man is the, currently the front runner for the Republican nomination for president. He has already been president. He is an incredibly newsworthy figure in American history. Um, I think that it's very important for us to recognize that while at the same time also recognize that we need to make sure that um, what we print, what we broadcast is um, holds up to just any other editorial standard that we would have in terms of veracity and truthfulness. So if what we are publishing is in a quote is not accurate, then we need to give the context of that. And that's something that I think is you know, a very difficult thing to do in certain mediums. I think that um, as all media kind of becomes this one um, certain type of um, media outlet, maybe the Washington Post hopefully has better writing than a lot of other folks, whereas, um, you know, a lot of formerly TV platforms to have better video online than other folks. Um, I think that it's important for us, though, to maintain that the what the context is and what the what the what the facts are and again reasonable people can disagree in politics like that's the entire point you can have disagreements about what the facts imply what the facts mean but but in certain situations um especially when it has come to trump he he's just um you know denied reality and i and i think that just on a particular georgia note one part of the cnn town hall that i think is going to be really interesting is what district attorney fonnie willis thought of his many comments about <laughs> the georgia call um with brad with brad raffensperger where I mean, he he just doubled down on saying that Raffensperger owed him votes. And he said, I said, you owe me votes because the election was rigged to to follow um, to practice what I preach here. The, the election, we have no evidence that the election was rigged. The, um, we've had multiple debunkings from Georgia investigators, from the secretary of state's office, from federal investigators, from laws of court to say that that was not the case. Um, and we just need to give that context that that is not something that happened. And that even though he is consistent, continuously saying it, potentially continuously incriminating himself um, in an on in a potentially ongoing and active investigation into him, we we need to, I think, give people as much of the information as possible, all of the news that's fit to print, as as one rival usually puts it, but also be but also be giving the context of what we can understand to be true and what we have found to be true. To add to Kevin. Matt's context, um, it not only was the election not rigged, but it is in Georgia, provably the most secure election in the state's entire history. It has there has never been a more carefully monitored, scrutinized, audited uh, election result that can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. It is not anything but that the election in Georgia. Which is precisely why, Kevin, um, when a Donald Trump continues to talk about the fake election, the rigged election in Georgia, it is crucial for journalists to make the point uh, uh, in their reporting uh, what you just said. And we do. And you certainly have in the pages of the AJC every time that question comes up. Heather, let me go back to the uh, town meeting and um, uh, make an observation based on uh, one of the comments you made. You you said we didn't learn anything new about Trump during that town meeting, and that's certainly too, true. We've heard his uh, act over and over again. But here's where Chris Licht, the new chairman of CNN, uh, said about it, which I think is interesting. He said, I absolutely unequivocally believe America was served very well by what we did. People woke up, and they know what the stakes are in this election in a way they didn't the day before. And if someone was going to ask tough questions and have that messy conversation, it damn well should be on CNN. And there are others who agree with that point of view, which is, yes, we know who Donald Trump is, but to be confronted with him in his most outrageous form during that town meeting was a wake-up call to those uh, who worry about him occupying the White House again in a little bit, in, in about two years. Well, uh, I, it's hard to think of any uh, media event with Donald Trump speaking with, that is not a wake-up call. Um, there are moments where he <laughs> used to read the teleprompter and people would say, oh, that was a presidential moment, and then he would go off script shortly thereafter. So we've had a lot of wake-up calls. I, I would agree if someone has been living in a closet in a bunker and just came out and saw the news for the first time, they'd be like, wow, what the heck happened here? Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think I would disagree with Chris Lick that, that, that this has been some kind of breakthrough. This is sort of more of what we've seen 
from from Trump all along. Of course, I would expect him to say that it's his network. And, you know, why would he be negative about his own network? He's he's boosting and promoting what what he did. Sure. Kevin, I do think that Chris Licht may be on a, a perilous path uh, with with some of what's going on at CNN. And again, I, I've never run a, a TV network, so I'm, I'm not going to criticize him. Uh, but I, I will say this. If you were going to defend his point, I would go back to those press briefings that Trump started having during the height of the pandemic. And I think that nothing revealed what a poor leader he was, how how just completely absent he was as a leader and understanding the crisis the nation was in then those press conferences and when when the you know the real experts on his staff were literally wincing and looking away as he was talking and if we go back would we rather ha- say that it that that would we have been more comfortable or better off if that hadn't happened I would argue that as a country, we were better off, that the nation got to see that the man we have in the White House can't help us in this crisis. Matt, you want to get in a final word before the break? Yeah, I would I would just simply note that I think it's important um, when it comes to Trump that we also acknowledge that this was a wake-up call for a lot of Republicans, um, both in ways that mm. um, a lot of Republicans saw as good and that a lot of Republicans saw as bad. I mean, um, I can't imagine that Ron DeSantis' team was particularly happy that after um, the E.G. Carroll verdict and the CNN town hall that a lot of Republicans were reminded things, reasons of while a lot of Democrats and, and independents might find them abhor- abhorrent about Trump, there's a lot of things that Republicans reminded, oh, this is why I like this man. This is why I'm attracted to him. This is why I find him charismatic or why I think that his policies are very important and attractive. And it ha- and a lot of his rivals in the uh, Republican primary were basically, you know, seems to have been frustrated from some of our reporting about the fact that there's this rally around the flag that, that Trump, even, even if you um, think that some of his more, you know, crazy comments or his buffoonery or his lies will, you know, drive away um, more moderate voters, that there's an almost elemental connection that he has with GOP voters who um, are attracted to a lot of the things that he stands for and a lot, and more importantly, a lot of the things he stands against. And I think that that is an incredibly frustrating thing for some of his rivals and an incredibly exhilarating thing for some of his allies. All right. Thank you all for getting us off to a good start on this edition of Political Rewind. Lots more that I really want to talk about with this great panel, but we'll take our first break right now and be back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Kevin Riley, The Washington Post, Matt Brown, and uh, MIT professor Heather Hendershot with us for today's conversation. Heather, um, let's get away from Donald Trump specifically for a while here, because there are broader issues about coverage of politics these days than just Trump himself. And, And I'd like to go back. If people have not heard the show we did with you about your book, When the News Broke, uh, which dealt with uh, the way in which journalists were covering the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, that tumultuous event, um, and which you make a very important point that, to some extent, that was kind of ground zero for viewers to, for the first time, really have doubts about the honesty and credibility of the people who were covering uh, the convention, including even the great Walter Cronkite. By the way, you can still listen to that show. It's on our podcast. It's also at our website at uh, gpb.org slash PR. But, but Heather, let's talk about all of this in that context. And, and I'm going to, again, I, I sometimes get uncomfortable uh, putting us in the spotlight, but it's certainly true that when we on this show report Uh, some of the things that we talk about that our audience really doesn't want to hear. If we say Brian Kemp, as governor, has done a pretty remarkable job with his economic development team bringing new business to the state, um, we're not suggesting 
that he does everything right. We're not suggesting that we want him, uh, to, we'd vote for him for re-election if we were able to. But the minute that we say anything positive about um, a political leader like him, we get a lot of pushback from people who say, we're not going to even listen. We don't want to hear you talk that way. And, and I think in many ways, that's kind of what your book talks about, is people who did not want to hear what was happening on the convention floor and in the streets of Chicago. Yeah, people saw things they didn't like and they blamed the media and they saw police brutality. And some of them said, well, obviously that wasn't police brutality. And in some ways it was, it was just complete misperception. It was also that they were being fed that line by the mayor of Chicago at that time, Mayor Daley uh, and, and Richard Nixon and LBJ. Everyone was saying the media got it wrong. And But what's interesting is that the the sense that viewers had was that it was the media's fault, but that they hadn't told the story right. And if they'd shot different footage and told the story differently and shown that the protesters in the streets of Chicago deserved to be beaten and so on, then the police actions would have been seen as viable and legitimate. And um, they, they were they were incorrect. And media did a very good job showing what had happened in the streets. But it's a different perception of reality than what we see today in terms of a media criticism, because they're not saying... Uh, uh, that the reality is that no one was hit or whatever. They're, they're just saying, tell the story better. And today, if when people see images they don't like, they often say, well, that's that's fake. That just never happened. And of course, we live in an era of deep fake and an era of different kinds of technologies. So it's a pivot moment, but things are much worse now, <laughs> I think. Kevin? I think what contributes to it, too, is the um, we're living in an age where... Uh, for lack of a better word, expertise and institutions are are called into question. I mean, even if you look at the the uh, abortion drug case that's winding its way through the courts, we have a uh, in in the recent oral arguments, we have an appeals court that seems to be comfortable challenging the science of a very well established federal agency, the FDA, and how it approves drugs. And so, I think that that is all through our society where people believe much more in their personal experiences. So if I'm posting something on next door, I start to feel like, gosh, I'm, I know as much as any journalist and, and, and uh, I know what happened because I talked to my neighbor and he told me what happened. And I do think that that all contributes to this idea that um, you can't necessarily believe, you know, uh, what the media is reporting. And then I also think, you know, the incredible falsehood of there's two sides to every story. I mean, the truth is there are many, many sides to every story. And the idea that uh, a completely ludicrous, unfactual side should be presented in an attempt to balance, which, uh, you know, again, you see a lot of now is, is just, you know, undermining it further. Uh, but the the media, if people get frustrated with the media and blame the media when I think they're really expressing their own frustrations with society. Um, Matt, which leads me to uh, bring up the whole issue of so-called objective reporting, as if that is a standard that journalists should strive for. But, but the reality is there's really no such thing as, quote, objective reporting. There can be balance in reporting to a certain extent. Um, but it's always seemed to me a misnomer when people accuse us of not being objective. Well, yeah, I definitely have to tread carefully here, given that um, like my um, news organization <laughs> and many others have been part of this conversation um, for, for several years now. I, I think that there, um, obviously the debate over objectivity is something that um, our, our industry is rightfully obsessed with because I think it really gets to the core of trust, of trust for us. But I also think, um, and I think that in part of that, it's important to be fair to you know, all sources, to all people included in a conversation, it's important to be as accurate as possible. If, um, to you know, the best of your ability to understand what what has gone on here, and to be honest about what you don't know and um, where you're coming from on a story. So I, I think that these are all things that different news outlets are, are grappling in different ways. But that it is possible to, um, I believe, in my news organization, um, often um, believes that it is possible to come to a true and accurate account of something, which I think is something that a lot of people um, in our current day and age want to assault the idea of that, well, you know, um, you know, truth, like your, the truth isn't true is, is um, alternative facts. Like these, these are things that people have argued. And I, I would love for um, Heather's perspective on 
um, and on if any of her colleagues or herself have, have studied, um, you know, how American rugged individualism has contributed to a low trust society and what's the way back from being a low trust society to a high trust society. But I think that in the moment as a member of the media and as part of this industry thinking about this stuff, the only thing that I can do and think about is how can we build trust with people and how can we connect with people, which, which is, I think is an important thing. Um, to, you know, look at examples like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, where she has, for instance, criticized um, the DeSantis camp for not engaging with um, national news outlets, so so-called mainstream news outlets, because she sees it as important to talk to anyone possible. But from her perspective, that's not because it's just giving a wider audience. It's because it also allows her to use the media as a punching bag and to delegitimize us in our mission, which serves her mission. So I think that that's um, an important thing to also understand is that we need to be very conscious of how we are perceived, how we're engaged with, um, and that when it comes to objectivity, we, we all we can do is our best and be constantly thinking about what that the best actually looks like. Yeah, responding um, to Heather, pick to up prompt, on that. I, yeah, I wish I had a great plan for how we could get to a higher trust society. That's a, that's a that's a tall order. But I will say that you know this. <laughs> The, the language of objectivity is something that people throw around and, and sometimes assume that the, the, the media is, that that's their default setting somehow. And if you go back to the 50s and 60s and really into the 70s, the peak network news era, uh, the executives and the reporters and, and the anchor people like, like Cronkite, they were like, there's no such thing as objectivity. They were very clear on that, right? Everyone has a background, a perspective, a point of view. And even at that point, the new network news was dominated by white middle-class men. <laughs> and they were not super enlightened about that, but they were aware that they came from a certain background and had a certain perspective. And they said, we're not looking to be objective. That's impossible. Uh, sometimes they use the word balance and they kind of assume two sides to things, but really their default was we want to be fair. Um, and that is what good reporting is. And sometimes you, you really get away from let's show the other side because the other side is simply wrong. I mean, Edward R. Murrow said that. <laughs> um, and there's a moment in Chicago and back in 68 where they realized, yeah, this is police brutality. And we're, and and we're not going to pretend that, well, the police have a valid point of view here as well, you know, and they just reported what was what was fair and accurate. And they got away from the idea, well, we have to balance and we have to be objective. And they just told the story truthfully as they saw it. Uh, Kevin, um, I do want to talk a little bit about Marjorie Taylor Greene in a couple of contexts after the break. But before we get to that, um, get to the break, uh, one final note about all this in terms of fair coverage, and you'll understand this completely. Um, we have talked frequently on this show in the same way that your uh, reporters have written about it, the Atlanta Police Training Center. Um, we've had people on the show who've been critical of the training center for a variety of reasons, including the feeling that it's um, that the Atlanta Police Foundation has been somewhat secretive in, its, in the way it's gone about uh, putting this uh, uh, plan uh, together. We've had people come on the show very recently and say it's an absolute uh, necessity to build this thing. Um, as you well know, uh, no matter what position you take, you are going to hear from uh, angry, in your case, readers, in our case, listeners who say, how dare you uh, be supportive of the Atlanta Police Training Center? Um, don't you realize that uh, cops are bad people? In other words, it goes back to what Matt said. It strikes me that journalism today more than ever, maybe, uh, requires people to be very, very strong in uh, stating uh, positions without fear of what's going to happen when your readers, when our listeners uh, hear or read what we're saying. You can't let them determine your uh, uh, way of reporting. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And the police training center, I actually wince every time you bring it up on the show because I know here, here comes the Twitter storm um, and all that. And I do think a couple things, Matt and, and Heather both made the point, fairness is really what we're after. I mean, that is really, uh, I, I understand the objectivity. I understand striving for that. You know, to quote a Washington, famous Washington Post person, um, uh, Carl Bernstein, you know, the best obtainable version of the truth, you know, which is really what we're after as well. Um, but let's be blunt. Fox News hijacked the phrase 
fair and balanced. And what they really meant was we're going to twist the news to satisfy a conservative audience. And that has, over the past 20 years, really, um, I think, created uh, problems for the media because, I mean, do you really want to argue that Fox is fair and balanced? I mean, come on. If the recent lawsuit doesn't show that they have no interest in that, I don't know what does. So I think the idea of fair and balanced is has confused the public. And, and in the end, and with the police training center, when we hear from people, what are they really frustrated with? They are frustrated with what's going on in their community, their society, their leadership. And instead, they directed at the media when we wouldn't even know this stuff was going on if we didn't report on it and work hard to get the best obtainable version of the truth. Kevin Riley gets the last word in this segment of the show. We got to get to our final break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Matt Brown, uh, you were the first to mention Marjorie Taylor Greene on the show today. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, and so let's talk about her for a minute. Every time I read about or see on a, on a cable show another one of Marjorie Taylor Greene's outrageous statements, I sort of take a deep breath and I think, wait, is this outrage important enough and is it in some ways meaningful enough that we should share this with our listeners or is this just white noise that needs to be ignored for the time being? And we have that conversation with uh, Chase and Natalie uh, quite regularly. Because sometimes when we amplify Marjorie Taylor Greene's remarks, we give her more opportunity to raise even more uh, money, and we give her a larger platform for her extremist views. How do you cope with somebody like a Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt? Right, definitely. Well, I, I think that it's very important to contextualize that Marjorie Taylor Greene is a sitting member of Congress who is oftentimes, who has been repeatedly elected now by members of Georgia's 14th district and that she, you know, has garnered a lot of support. I mean, I've been at, for instance, um, you know, anti-abortion rallies in front of the Supreme Court where I've seen, um, you know, supporters of Marjorie Taylor Greene from all across the country basically almost cry coming up to her saying that they have so much, you know, respect and adoration for, for what she stands for and what she says. Um, so, so knowing that and knowing that context, I, I think that it's, Im it's just important to remember that at the same time that you have to think, is this newsworthy in exactly the way you were saying, and that is she just saying something that, um, is, you know, outlandish, uh, or, it, and would our, um, you know, readers, viewers, listeners, um, tune into it because it's outlandish or is she saying something that's actually of consequence for policy? So, so I think that that's, it's our job literally for our, um, you know, um, audience to, they trust us, um, hopefully to be able to sift through kind of what is just noise and what is actually something that is newsworthy or a shift here or something that's notable that people should pay attention to news, if you will. And I think that that's the, the, the difficult thing that we need to balance when it comes to characters like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Kevin, Kevin. Well, yeah, I, I do think there's a couple things important to remember about Marjorie Taylor Greene. The first in, is that she moved into that district, uh, in a perfect example of politicians picking their voters, which is what goes on now and part of why we have these problems that we do, as opposed to voters picking their politicians. The other is with every outrageous thing she utters, she raises all kinds of money across the country. So I do think those are two things to always remember as, as we try to cover and we try to remember that. Uh, the, the other challenge is simple. I mean, if you ignore her, you will hear from people about why you're ignoring her when she does something you don't deem newsworthy. And then it's we do a lot of trying to explain how and why we cover certain things. I mean, that's a routine in our newsroom. And we work with an outfit called Trusting News, which has a lot of great advice on how to you know, help 
readers and users of your website understand what you do, why you do it. But it's kind of hard to say if you write about why you're not writing about Marjorie Taylor Greene, then you've effectively written about her, right? So it is not a, a simple thing. And again, I think it comes down to some of the conventions that we have in the media that we, we need to begin to question. So, Heather, that brings us to what happened. And you're certainly welcome to weigh in on any of this. But I'd like to also direct you to that 60 Minutes interview that Leslie Stahl did with Marjorie Taylor Greene, which, um, which struck me as being an example of the dangers of a journalist somehow trying to make nice and, uh, and befriend, to some extent, an extremist figure like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Weigh in on that, but also... Please, your larger context for all this. Yeah, yeah. To start with the 60 Minutes interview, uh, you know, obviously interviewers have to be tough, smart, fair, and not make nice with their subjects. They're not there to be friends. You know, they're not doing celebrity interviews. They're doing polit political interviews, and that should be their perspective. Um, thinking about the, the what Matt and Kevin were just talking about, it gets me thinking about the difference between local... Uh, or regional news outlets versus national news outlets. And, you know, Kevin comes from the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, which serves Georgia primarily, and the Washington Post does not just serve the, the Washington area. That is a more national, you know, news venue. And so it makes me think about, well, what are the ways that Marjorie Taylor Greene must be followed uh, or must be reported on for a local audience that is, you know, what what's meaningful to a Georgia audience and important to report on to that audience compared to a national audience. And maybe those distinctions are so eroded because anything can be national because it's recorded and it's picked up on TikTok or it's retweeted and it goes viral or whatever. Uh, to some extent, those distinctions between local and national feel they're so eroded. Um, but I'm wondering when they still remain relevant in terms of choices about how news covers things. Um, Matt, uh, one of the things that we have not talked about, but in in fact, Heather just kind of referred to it, is um, the ever-growing influence of, of uh, social media platforms in, uh, in, in uh, sending out uh, the news. I mean, it's it's clearly significant, Matt, that today Ron DeSantis is officially announcing his presidential campaign, not with uh, a rally uh, uh, and, and, and not with uh, some video that is being released by his organization. He's going on Twitter to have a conversation with Elon Musk in which he will get out his first official message about the campaign. And it just points to the fact that we can talk about all the legacy media we want to, but social media is going to play an increasingly important role in the 2024 election. Oh, and, and I mean, there's so much to unpack in the you know, Elon Musk, Ron DeSantis announcement that we just don't have time for here, quite literally. However, I will say that, yeah, like, so this is going to be the most social media election um, that we've ever had. And this is going back to, I mean, you know, Obama and Facebook in 2012, um, you know, when it comes to just Donald Trump's entire presence on Twitter for the past couple, for the past eight years. Um, and I think that it is very important for news outlets to understand that in this environment, um, you know, cable news is likely, live cable news is likely not where people are going to see most clips of cable news. Um, you know, I am, um, as, so, as someone also in their 20s, I understand that a lot of my friends basically tell me, you know, like we um, adore your, um, you know, news articles. We think that it's um, great that you can go on TV or go on the radio, but I would not know that you did those things unless I saw them on social media. Um, <laughs> this is just how people engage with um, the world that they're, um, that we that we live in now. And I think that it's important that news organizations um, go from becoming the, the gatekeepers of information and understanding they're, that we're the only venue that people can ever find um, news to becoming guides. Like you're going to see something on TikTok. You're going to see someone just spouting something off on YouTube. Um, you're going to see people like sharing posts on Facebook. And it's just very important that um, as a society, we become more media literate, but also that um, people do still feel that they can come to trusted news outlets like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the Washington Post and listen to experts at MIT to understand what's actually going on in the world. Um, Heather, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of torn about uh, some of the role that social media plays in the sense that, number one, uh, it, it can certainly perpetuate misinformation, 
But it, it is it, it, at least it's a place where on Twitter or uh, other on Facebook or whatever, where people can actually have dialogues. I mean, you can get called out just as easily as you can be praised on uh, on an Instagram post. Well, you can, but sometimes the dialogue is sort of like, uh, you know, pulling, you know, giant cans in a grocery store, you know, those pyramids of cans and you pull a can out on the bottom and it all falls on top of you. I mean, that's, uh, is that a dialogue, Joe? You're going to kind of oh, yeah. delude, you know, so there are, there are opportunities there, but there are also kind of uh, limitations. Um, you know, I I, I we we always have to be aware of the social media context and how things can be discussed or weaponized or whatever. And this is where I think when I think about like legacy media, um, headlines become so important. I was so impressed by that 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 headline deepening radicalization of Donald J. Trump as opposed to Donald J. Trump is opposing is is appealing to more and more Republicans. I feel like there have been a lot of very very bad headlines over the last uh, six years, and. Um, headlines are what get amplified as sort of clickbait for better or for worse. And the right headline will amplify the right kind of story and the right kind of framing and thinking about a story, even when we're dealing with sound bites in, in a, 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 a social media context. Okay. I surrender to what you said about uh, forums like Twitter. Uh, typically they're not exactly really helpful in expanding the dialogue. Kevin, quick comment from you before we're done with the show today. I do think it's amazing that we in mainstream media agonize endlessly about the decisions we're making, how we're making them. And then in social media, no one seems to worry about it much at all. <laughs> Kevin Riley, uh, Heather Hendershot, Matt Brown, thank you. We're completely out of time. I really appreciate the conversation on today's show. So thanks for being with us. We're back, of course, with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care. Stay healthy, and please be good to one another. Bye, everybody.